Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work... Go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. This episode is brought to you by PipeDrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. PipeDrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With PipeDrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Guy here, and today we've got a brand new live episode of How I Built This featuring Emily Weiss of Glossier. But before we start the show, a lot of people ask, you know, how can we support How I Built This? And the best way to support what we do is by supporting your local public radio station. Here at NPR, we're launching our annual fundraising campaign starting Tuesday, November 27th, which is Giving Tuesday. But if you're listening to the show on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, it doesn't matter. It's never too late to pitch in. It's really easy. Just go to donate.npr.org built. That's donate.npr.org built. And thanks. So we flew to LA. We got our like Hertz rental car and we drove during rush hour all the way down to this like middle of nowhere place and we pulled into the parking lot the parking lot's empty there's a stray dog like roaming through it like tumbleweeds blowing I mean I was like why don't we just go like let's just call it this is most certainly not our guy but we went in and inside was this like 6-4 jacked like dad who's so excited about women's skincare like you just <laughs> would not believe <laughs> From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Emily Weiss turned her fashion and beauty blog into Glossier, a brand that's now shaking up the entire cosmetics industry. So back in 2012, Facebook paid about a billion dollars for Instagram. And you might remember, we actually interviewed the Instagram founders back when we first launched the show. Anyway, what made Instagram a valuable proposition to Facebook at the time wasn't profitability. 
Instagram was basically a free app where people posted their photos. But what it did have was 20 million users. And Facebook saw in Instagram what it saw in itself years before. You build the customer base first, and then you figure out how to monetize the business with those customers. Now, this isn't an easy way to start a business. You have to create something for free that's compelling enough to keep people coming after you introduce the product. And this is sort of the story of Glossier. And I say sort of because when Emily Weiss started her fashion and beauty blog back in 2010, she didn't do it with the intention of one day creating her own cosmetics brand. But what happened was that blog, Into the Gloss, it blew up. Hundreds of thousands of readers became obsessed with hearing about other women's skincare routines. And so as the blog grew, Emily started to wonder, could I actually create a cosmetics brand for my readers? So in 2014, she found a single investor and she launched a small line of skincare and makeup products. And today, just four years later, Glossier is valued at around $400 million. And her customer base of millennial women is the envy of the cosmetics world. So now, how did she do it? How did Emily Weiss seem to come out of nowhere to disrupt an entire industry? Well, the first thing to know is she didn't come out of nowhere. Emily's been walking the walk since age 15. When she talked her way into an internship at Ralph Lauren and then got a college job at Vogue where she ended up working for several years before quitting to focus on her blog full time. It's a blog that inspires fierce passion among her readers. And when I sat down with Emily for a live interview on stage at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts in New York, you could hear that passion in the crowd. I think you've got a lot of fans that here, Emily. That amazing. I wish I could do that every day. <laughs> you just like walk into your into your living room yeah. and there's like a big yeah, cheering section. Yeah, from work, you yeah. know, just... All right, so <laughs> um, can we... This is really... This is actually a very serious question. Can we clear one thing up? Is it is it Glossier or Glossier? Glossier. Glossier, okay. Do people, do people sometimes ask you that question? All the time. Yeah. Even in France. We just oh, launched really? in France, and all the girls were like, it's Glossier. And we were like, no, it it's here. Glossier. You guys should know. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, start, let's start when you were a kid, right? You grew, grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut. It's not too couple, hour, hour and a half from, from New York City. Tell me what you were like as a little girl. Um, I mean, I was really weird. I mean, I'm still really weird. Um, I'm into a, a wide variety of things. So love animals. I had almost every kind of pet. Hmm. I mean, I had like an iguana, like a turtle, bur- a pair of blue cap cordon bleu finches. Yeah. Like I bred uh, guppies, fancy tail guppies and wow. tried to sell them to a the fish store. A guppy breeder and a makeup, in, yeah. you know, right. Yeah. Who knew? At the same time, I was super into, uh, I think, I think fundamentally storytelling. Like I was really interested always and I always have been in the power of narrative and and storytelling and kind of uh, imagining like complete worlds or like systems. Yeah. I was definitely, you know, very into makeup. I used to make my own costumes. Like I would like sew like butterfly costumes for Halloween and yeah. yeah. Was it just something that you kind of you naturally gravitated towards? Just 
For sure. Yeah. It's not even like fashion specifically or beauty specifically. It's again that like power of creation. Like you can create yourself through fashion and, and beauty and you can create different looks and you can kind of use them as tools. So I've always been really interested in kind of, you know, beauty products are like crayons, you know, or, or, or clothes are kind it of It was like an outlet for crayons. your creativity. Exactly. So if, if we were to hop into a time machine and go back to high school, your high school era, and, and I, we saw you there, mm. what was, would people have identified you at the time as like, oh, there's Emily Weiss, she's really into fashion, like, and you would see this high school student sort of dressed, you know, differently. Yes, yes, and, but it wasn't good. Like I wasn't, I wasn't good at it. I was probably doing things way too young. Like I remember, well, I'll tell you one thing I did. I went to my first day of middle school in a new, new school and new town. And God bless my mom because Clueless had just come out. And I was really excited about wearing those outfits. And so I, I wore thigh-high stockings to my first day of sixth grade with high-heeled loafers and like a full kilt and like a feather pen in this like town where people were playing lacrosse and like, you know, like sport. And they were like, who is this girl? Um, so, yeah. Like many teenagers, you were a babysitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you happened to do a babysitting gig for a family that would eventually land you an internship at Ralph Lauren. How did that happen? What's the story? Um, I mean, that is, you know, people often ask me what amount of your success is attributed to luck. Mm. Um, I really believe in kind of grit. And I mean, I didn't make that up. That's Angela Duckworth and her book, Grit. Uh, a very good book, but that actually just was luck. I mean, that there was nothing gritty about babysitting for your neighbor's kid, um, and he happened to work at Ralph Lauren. The 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 dad yeah, worked yeah. at Ralph Lauren, and but you were like fifteen, and how did the conversation come up? You were just like, oh my god, I love. It Ralph was L- a very brief conversation. I remember standing in their kitchen, and at some point, I don't know how long I'd been, you know, how many times I'd babysat for them, and at some point, I he's I, I asked her. He said. I work at Ralph Lauren in New York City. And I said, how can I work at Ralph Lauren in New York City (laughs) instead of babysitting your kids? And they were lovely. They were really great. Um, And he was a real sport to to propose, you know, to Ralph Lauren HR. This is a long time ago. I'm sure this is illegal now, um, given I was 15. But I went in and I interviewed with HR and I went through the process and I think they saw something there and I worked my butt off for two summers. And you were going to Ralph Lauren's... uh, Headquarters on 650 Madison Avenue. It was on Madison and 60th. There was a hot dog stand in front that I would eat, like, buy. I was so excited about, I'll never forget this. I was so excited about getting these hot dogs. I mean, I, I was in New York City. Like, I was yeah. like, this is what you do. They were like, oh, my God, what are you eating? Like, do not eat that. Um, I remember, like, it was, I didn't know. And what do you, what do you remember about... Like what? What did you? What did you do there? I mean, you were a 15, 16 yeah. year old. I did whatever. Whatever they I, had. Whatever needed. Photo. You know, scan, I would. I was so happy. You could give me anything. I was scanning. I was running errands. I was. I was the happiest intern you've ever seen. Did you ever? Did you ever meet Ralph? Oh yes. You did. Yes. Really? So I. Uh, no, I remember. I was in a room. You know, I was the like the note taker. So I was sitting in the room in the back and in the corner, and like you know, everyone was 
I don't know, meeting and I was taking notes and Ralph turned to me, you know, I think I'd actually maybe shaken his hand and met him at one point, but he doesn't know me and, you know, and he goes, and everyone just stops and he looks at me and he goes, what do you think? (laughs) I don't remember what I said. I don't remember. I just remember like the whole thing stopping and him asking because they were talking about something. I don't even know. Yeah. Wow. So you did those two summers as an intern at Ralph Lauren and then... It was time for you to go to college. You went here to NYU mm-hmm. as you studied. Was you, what did you Studio study? Studio art. And once you moved here, you got another internship at Vogue. Yes, at Teen Vogue. At Teen Vogue. Yeah. And by the way, I, I know. I mean, a, a lot of us have have an impression of what it might be like to work, and you know, like a Condé Nast fashion magazine from Devil Wears Prada. Um, it's a great film. It's a great film. It's a great film. Is there any truth to that? I mean. So I was really fortunate because I had a great boss. So I was actually at you know Teen Vogue as an intern, and then at Vogue, which was uh, the job that I had before building this company. Sure. Um, and uh, I was very. I think it's all about. It's kind of like anywhere. It all depends who your boss is. Like yeah. doesn't matter what company you're at. It's like, isn't there that thing? I just heard from someone that your personality is a result of the like three or five people who you spend the most time with. Hmm. You know, if you work with great, smart, talented people, which I was very fortunate to do, then uh, you learn a lot. When you were um, when you were an intern at Teen Vogue, and then you got your first job out of college at Vogue, did you envision that your career would be as a fashion writer or a fashion editor? Is that what you thought? Oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Yes, I mean, I you know, my dream was to be an editor in chief. So at the time, you know, in my in my early twenties. That was, you know, I looked at someone like Anna Wintour and that was incredibly inspiring to me. So how did you, I guess at some point you were able to write for Vogue, you were able to write an article which was about, yeah. I think it's about self-tanning, so, yes. right? Yes, yeah. so this is, this is kind of funny. Uh, so I'd interned in, I was always working in fashion and beauty is kind of like this, ugly stepsister to fashion in in magazines and in media it's really funny because all of the ad revenue or most a lot of it comes from beauty in these magazines but if you think about it like if you're reading an issue of a fashion magazine beauty can sometimes at least you know 10 years ago be like five or six pages or 10 pages you know there's such little airtime dedicated to you know this topic that in many ways you're like forced to deal with on a more fundamental level every day than even what you're wearing right it's like personal hygiene so uh, I'd never worked, I'd never t- covered this. Like I enjoyed beauty and I love talking about beauty with people, but I'm not even someone who's wearing, you know, who's like obsessed with beauty in a way, if you define obsessed as being, you know, wearing a ton of makeup or um, spending like lots of time, I don't know, getting facials. Like that, that, that was not me. But I was on a shoot in Miami, Florida. This is like 2010? This was 2010-ish. And I was on a shoot in Miami, Florida with um, Doutson Kroos. I don't know if I'm saying your name right. Was the, is the model. And we were in a trailer, which is often the case. You're in this, like, you know, RV. And at some point, the model Doutson, she said, she started talking about this, like, amazing self-tanner that she loved. And I don't even think I'd ever used a self-tanner. And she was like, all the other ones are, like, crazy. But when you use this one, you exfoliate this way. And then you put it on, it's, like, air foam. And it doesn't smell. And, you know, 
all these things. I was like, I gotta go get this friggin' self-tanner. It's gonna change my life. So I remembered it and I got it from the CVS in my in Wilton where where I was for the summer. And um and I and it was great. I mean it was really a, a great experience, this this self-tanner. So I wanted to write about it. Like I was like, someone else needs to know. Like I heard it huh. because Dowson told me, which is a super crazy situation that no one else is going to be in. Yeah. And I need, like my civic duty is to like share this with the world. <laughs> so I went to the uh, beauty editor of Vogue, who was the full-time beauty editor, and I hadn't met her. And, you know, she's this legend, Sarah Brown. And... And I was like, excuse me, you know, I, I have an article. I'd like to, if, if I can write for Vogue.com, I, I think I would love to just submit it to you. And if you like it, you can publish it. And if you don't, like whatever, I just have to like tell someone. Yeah. Um, and she said yes. And, uh, and I wrote this article. It was like little little article about the self-tanner and she published it. And so that was where I actually caught the bug where I was like, I remember I had so much fun writing this post. I'm sure you can find it and Google it. It's like, I don't even know. It might be terrible, but I, it was such a cathartic moment um, yeah. to have this conversation around a product that I never really felt around like a shirt. Like it was like, I, I, I mean, I wanted to like wear a cool shirt and look nice in a picture, but I didn't feel the urge to be like, is anyone else out there wearing this shirt? Like, can we talk about how great it is? It just, it, it, it didn't get that bug. And it was just a few weeks or months later when you actually decided to launch your blog, which yeah. would become famous, Into the Gloss. Yeah. Is that why yes, you did it? It's connected sure. to that article? Yeah. You wrote that article and you thought, okay, I need to, to figure this out and do more of this. Yes, I mean, you know, this was the era of personal style blogs. It was like when all the like bloggers were starting and it was kind of this new thing, sort of not democratizing, but like really individual being like, these are the human beings and how they actually put these things together, right? As opposed to sort of very tightly held images from fashion brands or campaigns. It was like, this is what's actually going on, literally on the street with fashion. And I remember thinking, well, why doesn't this exist for beauty? Like, why is there no, like, in-depth exploration of people's beauty identities and, like, beauty stories? And there's really nowhere to find... I mean, certainly there's blogs that have existed long before Into the Gloss around, um, around beauty, but it was typically much more about kind of, like, what's new. Like, yeah. it would be, like this new mascara from, you know, XYZ brand just hit the market and it's so great because of all of these things. Yet, I often thought, like, it's not necessarily what's new that I'm most interested in, it's what's best. And this idea of what's best in beauty, I think is fascinating because it's there's no single what's best. Yeah. Like, I might love a, you know, matte lipstick and say it's five out of five stars, but you might love a shiny lipstick and be like, this lipstick's dry AF. I don't want it. Guilty. It's zero out of five. <laughs> um, so how did you actually, how did you actually launch this this blog. I mean, did you? Was it sort sort of as simple as like going to uh, I don't know WordPress or whatever blog you know hosting um, site and so, setting it up? So I'm not very technical. So WordPress is um, what hosted the first blog, and I had a really amazing set of collaborators who How I. How much money did you have to put in to literally? Start into the I, I mean, I'm I'm going to contradict myself because I'm sure in another interview I've said like 900 or 700 or like 850, but under a thousand under a thousand dollars to launch into um, the gloss. Yeah, because the website part was not expensive. Right. The, the money literally was just for the camera. To buy a camera, because you knew you were going to take photos. Yeah, yeah, I spent a Canon DSLR. It was a great little camera. But what was the, what was the vision of it 
at the time, and I'm sure it evolved, but when you, when mm-hmm. you went to like your parents or your friends, you said, I want to start this blog that's going to do what? That's going to give a voice through beauty, give people a voice through beauty. And what, what was the first post about? First post was a um, publicist who worked at a fashion uh, PR firm called Nikki Deem, and I thought she had like really cool hair and great sort of like style, and she was Australian and kind of, and I, I just interviewed her and I took a picture just on the street. Just asked her about like her whole routine. Her whole routine, yeah. Beauty approach to hair, beauty, makeup, the whole thing. And it was a very, very short. They'd progressively gotten much longer. And it was a picture of her and that was it. And we were off to the races. Now, here's the thing. You are at that point, Emily Weiss, a young woman in the world. You don't have a giant network of people. You don't have a whole lot of money and access to media platforms how did you how did people even know about it yeah so i mean listen i definitely was in a great position to attract you know people to be featured on the blog now whether or not they said yes i want to take an hour out of my day to go be featured on a unknown website with an unknown reporter uh, was a different question. But I was sitting on, you know, the floor of photo shoots with like a 15-year-old Carly Kloss, like tying her shoes. Now she's like, you know, a supermodel who's got nine million Instagram followers. So you would say to her, hey, would you mind talking? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's, we're all kind of spending so much time together. It'd be like, hey, can I like, you know, take your picture for my new blog? And I had enough goodwill and sort of uh, that some, a lot of people said no. I mean, literally like 80% of the people I would ask. But I think once I started featuring, you know, if you have a couple people, then different media sites would start to, you know, hyperlink and say, oh, today there's a profile on, you know, Carly Kloss on this blog called Into the Gloss. And so that's how it how it took off. And you would basically feature a different person mm-hmm. and their regimen and yep. the products they liked. And that was that was ba- that was it. That was because that's a pretty clear. Yeah, model. it was very clear. And I think, you know, we've always I've always focused a lot on good design. Like my personal philosophy is just like don't put things out into the world. Don't like make work that isn't really great. Yeah. Like it should be time well spent. You know, like don't don't waste people's time with like bad content. So um, the fascinating thing about Into the Gloss is some of our most popular features like they're not celebrities you know like we're in this celebrity culture and we we hear how much you know influence influencers have and yet like if we all really take a moment to think about like who's the last person who told us where to eat or like you liked their outfit and you know you saw it's like they're probably not the biggest mm. celebrity. It's probably someone who, like a friend from college that you follow on Instagram or, you know, someone you work with. And I think that democratization of expertise and around, not just expertise, the democratization of influence, just like the power of the individual to influence another individual is something that's fascinating and part of the reason I think why Into the Gloss really resonated. You were doing this, just to put this in context, you, you had a full-time job at Vogue. This was your side hustle. You were, like, yes. doing this on, the, on nights and weekends? Yes. Yeah. I was, like, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. Um, on Into the on Gloss. On Into the Gloss, like, transcribing or posting or editing. And then on the weekends, I would do all the shoots so, and the interviews. Mm-hmm. So I'd book the interviews and the shoots. And each one, I mean, I'd spend... I had I had your job. Like, this, like I love yeah. interviewing people. Yeah. So I would sit on people's floors in their bathrooms on their, like, closed toilet seat lids, you know, with my tape Taking recorder right. out. Yeah. And um, it's amazing because it's so hard for women to be the right level of maintenance. 
If you're too low maintenance, then you're lazy. You know, there's the stigma of like the person who like isn't doing enough. And yet if you're wearing a lot of makeup or you're like, look like you really care about, you know, beauty or appearance, then you're seen as sort of frivolous or like not to be taken seriously. So the kind of intricacies of beauty as like a, even just like a anthropological tool is really, really, really fascinating to, to me. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, at what point after you launched Into the Gloss did you start to realize that it was more than just, you know, some friends or a couple dozen people or a couple thousand people, but, like, tens of thousands of people? Like, was that pretty soon after it launched? No, it, it's, you know, it was it was a slow build, but within within the first year, it was such that, you know... I, I had gone to my first brand and I had my first media partner with Lancome. That was advertising? It was m- cash money. La- and it was Lancome? Yes, it was, it was Lancome. And was it enough money to, to like sustain no, it? No, no, it was $5,000. And, you know, this was more money than I'd ever had in my life, like ever had in my bank account. I mean, I think it was two and a half years before, you know, after you launched into the gloss, you were still with Vogue for- One year. One year. 12 months, because at that point, you know, we had enough... You know, it's funny, because people always say, well, how did you... I mean, this is one of the key questions for entrepreneurs, right? Like, when do you quit your day job? Yeah, how did you know when to quit Vogue to go full-time on the side hustle? I mean, listen, super personal decision based on a ton of different, you know, very personal factors for for any any entrepreneur. Um, For me, it was really just one decision to make, which was, I have to pick one. This is taking too much time and there's too much momentum. It's impossible to continue to deliver the um, product that people want, like people, you know, readers wanted. And at this point, a, a really big community was really wanting that I felt like I really, there was really no choice. It's not even just follow your gut. It's like follow something that is is really working, is really delivering, like, you know, changing things. And once you knew that, you knew it was time to... Yeah. Throw, throw everything into that. Yeah, it was time. I mean, I, I would have thought that that at that point, you know, into the gloss was you were gonna you were sort of thinking about this as a media property, right? Like this is a blog. Maybe you would spin it out into a podcast or a video show or something else, or like a deal with cable TV. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened. You you decided to create a product. Was that? I mean, again, like was that? something that just kind of happened on its own or was it a really deliberative yep. thought through thing yeah so the it's a really good question and i think the thing that has led to every decision that i've made is this very central thesis that you can create conversations and connections through beauty and into the gloss was the first version of that. Like that was the first step. It was the necessary beginning that showed a certain behavioral shift. You know, it was like encouraged people to be like, oh, okay, I'm sharing now what goes on in my bathroom, you know, that I used to do totally alone. And in doing, you know, in in working on Into the Gloss for the first year, I was exposed to all of these beauty companies. Hmm. So I was working with Lancome. I was working with Estee Lauder. I was working with Cody. I was working with, you know, every big conglomerate. And beauty is a huge industry. I mean, it's a $450 billion global market. It's going to be $750 billion in six years. Wow. And why is that? Because of social media. 
because of sharing, because of the ability to have conversation, that beauty is now something that is not just tightly held in the hands of uh, salespeople at, you know, a counter. You know, when was the last time any of you have, like, really relied on that? Yeah. 50% of people who go into a Sephora take out their iPhones. You're Googling, you're texting your friend, I'm in Sephora, should I get, what was that thing you told me about? You know, that's how things work. And what's interesting is these companies... I was hearing in these interviews from from women as I was sitting on the, you know, on the bathroom floor, I was hearing this like disconnect that would have been answered if beauty brands just listened. Like if the actual beauty brands were listening to well, first of all, if they knew who you were, which they don't because their client is the retailer, beauty brands right. build products and clients for the needs of, you know, Macy's and you know, Sephora and Ulta and CVS, and those are shelf space needs and seasonality needs and margin needs and mm. all of these different needs that have nothing to do with you as the customer. So that results in this kind of subpar like product experience and kind of brand relationship. There's not really this like personal, like you get me relationship. Mm-hmm. And that was what led to the creation of Glossier because all of every beauty brand that I've ever known has been built tops down. And the idea for Glossier is what would happen if you could build a beauty brand bottoms up? You could ask a question like, who makes your dream face wash and get a thousand responses? Who would play your face wash in a movie and have them say, Eddie Redmayne? It's like, <laughs> what the f***? Yeah. You know? so, um, so that was where the idea from Glossier came from was, you know, this is the next phase. Like this is the next way that we can bring together this mission of, of giving voice through beauty. I mean, weren't you, I mean, didn't anybody say to you, do you really think you can take on, you know, L'Oreal and Estee Lauder and, and Revlon? I don't even know the names of the biggest. I mean, th- these are huge, enormous multinationals. Like, did, did anybody say, you know, this is, this probably is not going to work? Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, literally all the odds are against you, like, are against, you know, are, yeah. are, maybe not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them. I mean, for one, you know, 4% of venture capital deals last year went to female CEOs. So four out of 100 deals went to women. So already it's like, well, how am I going to fund this thing? Because, like, you know, no one's going to give me money for this. You needed money, obviously, to create a product line. For sure, yeah. And did you I have mean, a number in your head of what you needed to start? In fact, I do. And it was based on precisely nothing. <laughs> I was like, it is going to take $1 million. That's what you said. Yes. Like, million dollars. You need to raise I was a million like, bucks. I bet you. <laughs> I need $1 million to make this happen. When we come back in just a moment, how Emily got her million dollars, found a chemist in the middle of nowhere, and a new tribe of customers just about everywhere. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. TurboTax makes all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. 
As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's 2013, and Emily Weiss has decided to make her own beauty products. And she thinks she'll need about a million dollars to make it happen. How did you how did you know where to start? I mean, you're in the New York fashion world. Obviously, you've got the successful blog, but like a lot of that is Silicon Valley. It's yep. like VC money's out there, and yep. that's a whole world. Mm-hmm. How did you know where to start? Well, first of all, I was like, what is VC money? Like, what is VC? Like, what is, I'm like, oh, venture capital, what is that? I mean, let's not forget, I went to art school. Like, I, <laughs> I, I did not go to business school. I did not, I did not work at a tech company. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of founders of, you know, fast-growth venture-backed companies um, worked at a fast-growth venture-backed company, right? right. Um, so, as an outsider, really hard to sort of understand and intimidating, this. probably. Very intimidating. But again, back to that power of grit, I just kind of plowed through on this, you know, exploration. Like, I think my personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think is, I'm really good at, I'm super curious. Mm. And so I, I, I kind of made a list, frankly. It wasn't even just about raising money. I remember having a whiteboard. Yeah. Like, what are all the steps it's going to take to build this company? And I wrote, you know, VC, like raise money, build website, uh, find chemist, you know, make logo, uh, you know, shoot. You just like wrote this on a whiteboard. Yeah, I still have you, the picture. Yeah. Like what are all the ingredients that this is going to take? And of course you don't know until you find out from one conversation what the other ingredient is you're missing. And just, you just have to start. You have to start somewhere. So, you know, the money needing to get raised happened pretty early in that process. What was your like elevator pitch to VCs? They So you go in and they'd say, okay, next. Yeah. 
My pitch to VCs in the beginning was, you know, we have this great community. We understand, you know, beauty and people and stories. And we have this robust community um, who we believe deserve a better a better brand, like a, mm. a brand that, that really hears them and understands them. And, um, and there's a lot of room in the market because this is a huge, huge industry, um, really ripe for disruption. There weren't very many direct-to-consumer brands at the time. Now you have, you know... ColourPop and Kylie and Kim Kardashian and all these different, you know, mm. D2C kind of brands. Um, but that hadn't happened. Yeah. I, I read that, that you pitched, I don't know, 13 or 14 uh, VC companies and mostly men. And uh, only one eventually agreed to give you that mm-hmm. initial funding. It was uh, the, the VC was a woman, mm-hmm. Kristen Green. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen? Yeah. So 6% of venture capitalists are women. And um, hopefully that will go up. So listen, we have incredible partners. Um, I think, you know, initially, so much of uh, funding is around pattern recognition. And so you have venture capitalists whose job it is is to make smart bets on companies that are going sure. to grow super, super fast and, and become the next Facebook, right? Um, and so it's hard to, I think, look at like a female CEO who does not have business a business school degree and, and sort of say, we're going to take the bet. And it felt, you know, it's exhausting. And I think I know a lot of entrepreneurs um, and I think it's hard for everyone. It, it, was, it was exhausting to go and we would hand, our, our COO and I, we would hand our products, you know, we'd have our little our little goodie bags and, and, and bring them to different rooms full of guys and have them get the bag and say, oh, that's so nice, thank you. I'm going to give it to my wife and yeah. you know, ask her what she thinks. And I would say to myself, if you know, some like financial technology company um, came to me and pitched me, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to go ask my husband to like explain <laughs> yeah. this to me. Yeah. I would like learn about it. I would like be like, show me your product. Let me understand this. Let me put it on the back of my hand. Like, can you tell me about like how people use this product? And the best people did do that. Um, and we have, you know, a handful of really amazing venture capitalists. We have a 50% female board and our first investor, Kirsten, I spent a lot of time with. And she was the, she was that, uh, that $1 million check. She, she believed in this idea. She wrote you that check. Yep. Do you know why she decided to take the take the risk? She has a really gut and data-backed knack for identifying consumer product companies. Mm-hmm. She invested in Warby Parker. She invested in Bonobos. Um, she invested most recently in Away. So she she's got good instincts. She has really good yeah. instincts around <laughs> yeah. yeah around. Uh, Around, around what are people going to care about? What do they want to live with? You know, like what do they, um, what moves people? I mean, yeah. this is a really emotional category, beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, again, there's no like single truth, right? Um, so it's really just about like opinion and preference and, and so many other ingredients. All right, so you've got this million bucks, right? We raised, we raised two. Oh, wow. Um, because you can't spend everything that you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so... How do you start a makeup company? Like, where do you go? Like, who do you call up and what do you say? Like, oh, can you make me this makeup? There's chemistry yes. involved. Like, like, how do you? Indeed. How do you make makeup? I mean, uh, you know, let me tell you uh, <laughs> how I built this. Um, uh, <laughs> so, okay, so my first hire. 
So first of all, always hire for your weaknesses, mm. right? And, and, and surround yourself with just the most brilliant people you can ever convince to come work on the shared vision that you have. And my first hire was an incredible um, director of product development who had over a decade of experience at um, Mac Cosmetics. That was my first hire because I've never made a, make a product and I don't know how it works or vendors or how long things take. Like I have, I have no idea. And I remember she ended up getting a recommendation for a chemist from someone who she knew from the beauty industry who was based outside of LA. So we flew to LA, we got our like Hertz rental car and we drove during rush hour all the way down to this like middle of nowhere place. And we pulled into the parking lot, the parking lot's empty. There's like a stray dog like roaming through it, like tumbleweeds blowing. I mean, you know, it was very, um, it did not look like this was gonna be our chemist. And there was this little mirrored building. It was literally like mirrored so that you couldn't see inside. I mean, I was like, why don't we just go? This is most certainly not our guy. Um, but we went in and I am so glad we did because inside was this like six, four jacked, like dad who like, like has, who's like building game changing skincare products for some of like the biggest brands that you've, you guys are literally sitting here wearing products that wow. he's created. Wow. Who's so excited about women's skincare. Like you just would huh. not believe. Wow. Um, and uh, and that he became our chemist, and he's actually developed like I don't know almost all of our skincare products. And, today. and what do you say to him? You say I want you know this this scent, or I want it like. How do you tell him what you want? Yeah, it's it's really a, a huge collaboration. I'm trying to think of like what I can a, equate it to. Maybe like the relationship between you and like your architect. Like if right. you're you know right. building a house. Right. It depends because there's lots of, like each of us would have a different relationship with an architect. Like one of us might go to them knowing exactly what we want with exactly the ingredients and the exact approach to sustainability and a s exact budget and like might be super involved. And other ones of us might be like, I kind of want like a white house, you know? And, <laughs> and so like where we were is we were more in the former camp. And so we came and said, we have these four products. We want them to do these things. We want them to, you know, have these ingredients and not have these ingredients. And we want the price to be this. And so we have to figure out like how to find the most amazing, you know, ingredients. And it's really just a back and forth. And we would spend, you know, on average, maybe like two or three months or four months of just shipping samples back and forth to each other. But a lot of it was just nerding out in the lab. Yeah. He had like a little room full of ingredients, like raw materials is what they're called. So literally like there'll be like a vat of like Koopa cow butter from like, you know, the Amazonian rainforest just sitting there. Like that's like part, one of the things you see listed on the wow. back of your, you know, whatever will just be in bulk sitting in a thing. So he would say like, un undo a jar and be like, smell this, you know, or hmm. scoop out a thing and put it on your hand and say, it's like being in a chef's kitchen. And so it really is all about that personal relationship that you have and your ability to work with someone, your ability to like riff off each other that has led to some of the most amazing innovations. It, it seems like baked into the business model from the beginning was this very deliberate idea that you were not going to have your product in the CVS or Sephora mm -hmm. or at Bloomingdale's or Lord and Taylor, wherever, mm -hmm. that, that this was going to be direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. um, why? why? Why wouldn't you, you know, make it available at these other places? Because we can build better product by having a direct relationship to every person. How? We 
don't have to make decisions for anyone other than the end user, like full stop. So first of all, that alleviates a ton of things that don't things that don't matter to you holding something and enjoying it and using it. It also enables us to like ask you questions. It enables us to like send you like questionnaires, you know, have have you been happy with this? Do you like what you got? You know, how would you improve it? What should we make later? It allows us to create platforms that connect our customers with each other mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, shared experiences around beauty. So, you know, we've put a thousand of our top customers in a Slack channel who exchange over 10,000 messages a week. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I was talking to to several people about about Glossier and, um, you know, it's many people, many women will go into a Sephora and try stuff on. And with the question is, how do you know what this is going to look like? And um, what's amazing is that you can you can just go on YouTube and type in, you know, Glossier, this, Boy bro. Bo- right, exactly, and you will find dozens and dozens of videos mm-hmm. um, from women with different skin tones and mm-hmm. shades, and you can almost see what it it looks like. Absolutely, it, it's it's almost like you you know most companies start with a brand and then build a customer base. You had a customer base, and then you introduced your brand to them. Yeah, although you know our customer base now is 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 much wider than you know readers of Into the Gloss. Yeah, um, for sure. But I think what you just described is again this kind of like shift of influence, um, and it's not about again the influencer being this two million follower, three million follower, million follower thing. It's the ability for your feedback on Boybrow, like that can be our customers' video, right? Like that's, it's Mm -hmm. like, this is how I use this and this is how it works for me. And if you go into our stores, we have two um, flagships, one in New York and one in in LA. Um, That is what is happening in there. I mean, women are waiting in line down the block, meeting the person in front of them, the person behind them, talking about whether or not they've used Glossier before, like what they like, what they don't like, where they're from, do they need a roommate? Like, suddenly they like work together. Like, you know, these are like lifelong relationships that are being formed. And then you go upstairs and people are up there for like an hour and a half and they're talking to each other in the mirror saying, what color is that? And they're barely even talking to the people who work, you know, work here. But what about for for women who don't don't have access to those stores? I mean, makeup is such a personal thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of your customers are buying the products without trying them on Mm -hmm. first. So how did you know that people were going to be willing to take that leap of faith. Well, I think part of it is by having a product philosophy and a approach to content that facilitates that leap of faith. What do you mean? Well, I mean, if we had, you know, a super high coverage foundation product, then that would require us to make, you know, 50 shades or something or 55 shades or something like that, which would be almost like impossible to sell online. I would have a really hard time like shade matching myself if there were 50 shades of something. Like I I would not know how to do that. Um, but what we can do is create, you know, a product like Boybrow that's super intuitive, um, that's super easy to use, that doesn't deposit too much, that, you know, is sheer enough that it can span a wide range of eyebrow hair colors, you know, something that facilitates that participation. You launched this company in 2014, four years on. First of all, how many employees do you now have? Oh, we have, um, so it changes every week because we have like five people starting, like even this Monday. Um, Now we're, I think, 186 full-time employees and 150 showroom editors. I think since that first million or two million 
in seed funding, you've raised more than 80 million. Mm-hmm. The company is now valued at more than 300 million, maybe close to 400 million dollars. Um, four years. That's crazy. Um, I have to imagine that the big cosmetics companies, the L'Oreal's, the Estee Lauder's, are really paying attention to what you're doing and really want to buy buy this company. They really want to own this brand. I mean, you know, you can go down the list, Bobby Brown and, and you know, some of these other iconic brands that were purchased by the larger brands. What happens if and when they approach you? Maybe they already have. So um, the companies that I most admire are companies that create iconic products um, that really stand the test of time. The other thing that I think a lot about is our mission. So I think about how else can we connect people through, through beauty? How else can we help people sit up a little taller, feel better about themselves through beauty? We have a really long way to go. In, in terms of actualizing that vision. In fact, I think about where we are today as truly just the beginning. Like being four years in for me, I wake up every day, I think it's day one. Hmm. And typically when you sell to a larger conglomerate, it's because you need more distribution. Because the benefit of having, you know, being a L'Oreal or an Estee Lauder company or something like that is that they have this vast network of Every, retailers. Yeah, store around the Macy's world. Macy's and all those things. And you don't need that. We don't need that. We create, you know, our own channel through our, our digital platform, mm-hmm. through Glossier.com. Um, and one of the things that we're most fascinated by right now is the fact that this beauty shopping experience, this experience of walking into a store and yet wanting to be connected to someone who you pick and and wanting to find information um, through a person that you relate to or that you are Mm -hmm. inspired by or choose, there's really nowhere to do that online. Like you can go on YouTube, but it's really like looks-based. It's really about kind of like, I want to do a cat eye or I want to do a unicorn Halloween makeup or something like that. But in terms of finding that individual story for beauty, it's really, really tough. So we actually just hired um, the person who built DMs and camera at Instagram. Hmm. And then we also made another hire of the guy who was employee nine at Instagram, um, who's an amazing product designer, digital product designer, because we're spending a lot of time thinking about how to create that digital uh, platform, that channel, because we've already built these tools, right? But like, where is the place where people can come together to talk about beauty, to, to, to share what they've learned from Glossier and all of the other brands and products yeah. that you know they use and talk about, and how can they find each other? Like they do at our at our flagships. I have to imagine that the big cosmetics companies are looking at your customer base, very young, multiracial. It's a super coveted demographic that you've got. Um, hard to recreate, right? Because there's an authenticity to what you do, and there's a risk of inauthenticity when you try to manufacture it. Are you watching your competitors as well? Do you keep an eye on what they're doing? Well, it's interesting because beauty is not that competitive in my mind because Hmm. how many different brands are we all using every day? Like how many different lip products do I have in my purse right now? You don't want to know. From like (laughs) all, all different brands, like eight different 
lip balms and lip glosses and lipsticks. And I'm not interested in like consolidating that. <laughs> like that is like not a, a, a realistic expectation of any of us. Like no single brand can make every, can meet, you know, all of your needs when it comes to, to beauty, at least in my mind. So for us, it's just about how can we be a part of yeah. this of this conversation? Um, how can we be a part and how can we most importantly facilitate the conversation happening? Yeah. When you when you think about and and you you partially answered this earlier but when you think about the arc of your career and you're still so young and you have so much to do ahead of you you may build two or three more companies who knows how much of what what's happened to you and what you've accomplished do you attribute to your persistence hard work grit and how much to to to, to lucky breaks I think I definitely believe in luck but I don't rely on luck and I don't attribute luck to um, where I am today. Um, I really believe that it is a combination of uh, this passion and this perseverance and probably a little bit of uh, having a very short memory. (laughs) I think it's such a gift. I I just keep going. I think when you fall or when someone says no or when um, something you try something and it doesn't work, the ability to just continue, like just pick up, there's a resiliency, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's, that's really when I hear the word grit, that's what it says to me is there's a resiliency to just, to just brush, shake it off, right? And, and keep going. Yeah. Just one last question for you. If you were sitting in this audience 10 years ago and you were watching somebody like you and you had a dream or an idea in your head, what, what would you have wanted to know? What do, you, what, what do you now know that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Corient has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. On the rare day when I'm not doing an interview, I definitely spend my time taking a long walk. It's nice to have a little downtime, but not all of our listeners are so lucky. If you're a business owner or a hiring manager, you likely work around the clock. How can you get help, at least help finding people with the right skills for your open roles? ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash built. ZipRecruiter's technology finds and sends highly qualified candidates for your position right to your inbox. And if you see a candidate you really like, it's easy to send them a personal invitation. So take a break from hiring and let ZipRecruiter help. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash built. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-U-I-L-T. ZipRecruiter. 
the smartest way to hire. I don't know. I would use the Phil Knight quote from Nike of like, just do it. You know, I mean, it's as cheesy as it sounds. Be courageous, like be curious and be courageous Mm. because the worst, it's like my friend says about dates. It's either a good date or a good story. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's really good advice. Like try things. It's going to help you grow and learn, you know, learn something, learn something about yourself. I, I really do believe that. Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier. Thank you. I spoke with Emily on November 1st at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at NYU in New York City. And just a few days after that, Glossier opened its first permanent flagship store in New York at the very same address where the company was founded. The new space is painted in Glossier pink and is ready for the camera, which means if you couldn't be there, you may have seen it on your Instagram feed. Our episode was produced this week by Rachel Faulkner with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Jeff Rogers, J.C. Howard, and Sanaz Meshkanpur. Our intern is Mia Venkat. And look out for another live interview coming your way this Thursday. On Thursday, November 29th, check out our next bonus episode from the How I Built This Summit in San Francisco. It's my conversation with John Zimmer, founder of Lyft. Oh, and one more quick thing. If you want to actually attend a live taping of How I Built This, we just released a few more tickets to our sold-out L.A. show on December 5th at the Theater at Ace Hotel. I'll be talking with Michael Dubin, founder of Dollar Shave Club, and you can grab those few remaining tickets by visiting nprpresents.org. Life Kit is like your friend with really good advice. So, can I really be truthful? Like, yeah. It's just me and you, right? Well, sure. <laughs> Let's say it is. Three times a week, Life Kit is in your feeds with episodes on health, personal finance, personal growth, and so much more. Listen to Life Kit from NPR. The global smartwatch industry is worth $45 billion annually. The Apple Watch is the undisputed bestseller, but Apple's dominance wasn't always a given. In the wake of Steve Jobs' death, Samsung was ready to capitalize on the company's uncertain path and beat Apple to market with the first smartwatch. By 2013, Samsung had become an electronics powerhouse, a far cry from its humble origins as a family grocery store. It was ready to take on Silicon Valley's finest. In this face-off, both companies will have to sway consumers while surviving PR disasters as they open the Pandora's box of interactive biometrics. Hi, I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery's show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time, and in our latest season, we're clocking the fierce battle over wearable technology between Apple and Samsung. Make sure you follow Business Wars wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.